Welcome to the Black Duck Revival Podcast. I'm your host, Jonathan Wilkins. I'm excited to have you join me as I speak with a fascinating collection of folks, all of whom have in common that they've made a way for themselves by finding an intersection between thoughtful consideration and the tactile work of getting their hands dirty. This is an examination of intention, capability, and craft. It's where philosophy meets the blue-collar work ethic and where I find real value. Hey folks, welcome back to the podcast. This week I am joined by Lindsay Davis of Salt Lake City, Utah. Lindsay is a fellow uh, ambassador for Sitka Gear. She's also the senior vice president of the Outdoor Recreation Roundtable, and that's the nation's leading coalition of outdoor recreation trade associations and businesses. Uh, she's an entrepreneur, an advocate, a writer, and an ecologist. And kind of above all things, she's just a really fascinating person, and I think a really good person. And when I met her earlier this year, I kind of like immediately took a liking to her. She stands out to me in the outdoor industry. Uh, and I kind of felt uh, some kinship there. And then after this conversation, I like her so much more than I already did. I believe in her so much more than I already did. And I'm really excited for you guys to hear this conversation. And I think you'll feel the same way about her at the end of it that I do now. So without a whole bunch of hoopla. I'm just going to kind of jump in to this episode of the podcast with my friend, Lindsay Davis. Enjoy. All right. Welcome back to the Black Duck Revival podcast. Still in Salt Lake City, Utah, still at Jay Byers Garage and, uh, I've stolen away for an hour or so with one Lindsay Davis before we go inside and enjoy some gumbo, kind of the capstone meal to my uh, pretty extraordinary trip out here to Utah. But uh, Lindsay, uh, I met Lindsay what June, I guess, at a at a Sitka event in Bozeman, Montana, when they were opening up their their new uh, brick and mortar store. Uh, Lindsay works in the outdoor industry and has for quite some time. She's uh, involved in advocacy for the outdoor industry. She's a ambassador for several prominent outdoor brands and really kind of has her hands in quite a few different things. I'm going to let her explain it better than I ever could. But Lindsay, thank you so much for joining me. Oh, it's so good to have you in Utah. I'm so excited you came and had a successful elk hunt. I've just been pumped that you made the journey and we're able to experience a big Western hunt. So, and now we're in the coolest gear shop in Utah, pretty much in Chase yeah, yeah. garage, which has everything <laughs> super fresh out here, man. It's like pretty new too. So it doesn't even have like that musty garage smell yet. No, it's pretty fresh. We're sitting next to a bunch of curing meats and the whole Sitka wardrobe. Um, but yeah, I, um, it's so good to see you. Yeah. Likewise, yeah. man. Yeah. Um, so for work, I I work for this organization called the Outdoor Recreation Roundtable, um, which is kind of a, it's a small nonprofit that represents a lot of big things. But um, the shortest way to think about it is that all of the businesses 
who do anything in the outdoors, whether you're Polaris or um, Winnebago or one of the biggest boating companies, we represent all of them um, to the government. And so we're the ones that run around and ask for public lands funding and ask for bike lanes to be built when the infrastructure package is going through and ask for wildlife corridors to be a part of road funding and all that stuff. So I love it because um, it kind of parallels my path as an outdoors person myself where um, I don't view myself as like just a climber or a skier or a backpacker or a hunter. You know, I do all these different things and, um, and I value, um, that perspective of the outdoors. And that's, that's what my work stands for. It's all of recreation kind of sharing the highest level um, things we can all agree upon and everybody needs. It's not benefiting the skiers over the snowboarders or something like that. So um, I work for on a really small team that's mostly based in D.C. and just try and keep up with them <laughs> most of the time. They're all incredibly talented and a lot smarter than I am and have a really keen understanding of how the government works. So I just learn a ton and try and keep up. Uh, you neglected to, to uh, share your title in that position because I think it... Uh you're, you're selling yourself short a little bit here and your title is very impressive. <laughs> it's, I just became the senior vice president of the organization. So, uh, probably the fanciest title I've ever had. Senior vice president. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. So I guess, you know, we're both like Sitka ambassadors, right? Uh, but you've been working within the outdoor industry, which is something I'm like, you know, very new to. I don't even think I quite realized it was an industry until like the last year or two, but like what led you up to this point? What were you doing before? Yeah. I've had a really non-linear career path, which I know you can relate to. Um, I actually like my, my background is in international development and sustainability. That's what I got my degree in. And I spent the first chunk of my career traveling around the world and doing like really local scale sustainability projects, whether it was building food systems or water systems or solar and, uh, solar systems. Um, that was my passion. And then I realized kind of the transaction costs of, of, you know, being this English speaking person traveling all over the place and started to focus on that work more in the States and, um, largely under this umbrella of permaculture and just like figuring out um, how as humans we can live in harmony with the natural systems around us. So if we're going to build a house, how do we build it in a way that, you know, captures the most passive solar energy in the summertime and or in the wintertime and shades in the wintertime and all that stuff. And um, fundamentally have just been mostly the consistent thread is I enjoy connecting people to the natural world. And, um, I guess through, that was mainly through conservation organizations and like environmental organizations. And I worked as a naturalist and an ecology teacher and all these different things, kind of whether it was exposing schools, school kids, or I did a lot of facilitation with um, tribes in Northern California and education. And then I got to the outdoor industry in a kind of surprising way, but it was another one of these kind of pathways where I was like, huh, if people start, you know, people have to be exposed to something in order to care about it. Right. Mm -hmm. And like the outdoors is often this 
really important on-ramp, I think, for people to start paying attention to the natural world because they go hiking or camping and then they notice the wildlife or they, you know, get to go fishing or they, they start to have these experiences that expose them to, to nature and wilderness and, and, um, and the land. And so um, I'm currently pretty holed up in the outdoor industry and the recreation space because I see it as this really important way that people start to connect with the natural world around them. You know, I was just thinking about, excuse me, what you're talking about as far as facilitating that connection to nature. You know, I think maybe in the last few years, I really, I didn't really quite understand this, but you know, most people have to have firsthand experience with something to, to be empathetic towards it and to care about it. Yeah. You know, uh, and that, I mean, that goes for all sorts of stuff, you know, like I've talked about that. Like we were just having a conversation about like how having, having daughters changed my perspective on things, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, and yeah, I think it's definitely the same thing with the natural world. And, and you know, that even saying the natural world, that's a, I don't know, that's kind of become a, a trope in some ways, you know, because I think that we've, we've gotten to a point where we have this disconnect, right? Like, uh, 150 years ago, like everybody had some relationship to an agrarian lifestyle, right? You know, I'm talking about like pre industrial revolution. So you didn't have to have, there was no need to have like programs in schools, you know what I mean? To, to get people connected to that because that's where they got their food from. They grew it or they hunted it or they fished or, Grandma had a farm. Even if you lived in a town, like you still had that relationship to the outside. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in this, in a very short, especially human history wise, in a very short span of time, you have people, a lot of people who live their entirety without that relationship. Uh, you know, and I think you can, I think you can have that relationship. You can still live a very urbanized kind of like modern lifestyle and still have that intuitive, very tactile, uh, tangible relationship with the outside or wild places or the natural world, however you want to quantify it. Right. Uh, I'm just put a pin in that for now. Uh, I'd actually like to circle back if I could, or I guess it's not circling back because I haven't brought it up yet. But when we first met, so we're at this, uh, like I said, the launch for the Sitka brick and mortar store there in Bozeman. And you were one of the presenters and you did this really cool, like walk around the parking lot and like foraging for edibles that I thought was like super well informed and really well presented. And even being someone who thinks I'm, you know, relatively well versed in that stuff. Like you were, you were bringing up all sorts of things I had no idea about, uh, and so I'd kind of be interested to know like how you came to that side of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, because I mean, I truthfully, I think that's something that's lacking very much in the hunting community. Uh, I think we get so focused on being like expressly goal oriented in this, these hunting pursuits, you know, and then that can even get kind of perverted into this like dominating uh, idea like dominating nature and like controlling and winning and you know slaying something uh and i was i was just really so impressed with your approach to it and like how good you were at it so how did you come come 
come to be proficient at that stuff. I, I love I love how well that experiment of doing a parking lot wild food walk at the Sitka headquarters went <laughs> because I was like, this feels kind of, you know, fringy for what's happening up yeah, here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, no, it definitely, it definitely could be interpreted as like a little crunchy. Yeah. But no, it absolutely makes sense. And I mean, I'd argue that, you know, part of being a good, like a good, effective, skillful hunter is to really understand the flora and fauna in relationship with each other around you. Mm -hmm. And, and like, especially like with cooking, I think it's super cool to, to cook animals, you know, to cook meat with something that that animal consumed or is like a part Ooh. of that environment. And you yeah. start getting all these, uh, different layers and this multi-dimensionality. So I think it's super important and that's what good hunters do. Like you figure out what something's eating, why oh, they're yeah. eating it at that specific time. Uh, and you know, most of the stuff that a mammal's eating, we can eat too. Yeah. I mean, it's all information, right? Like our challenge as, as hunters or people who are interacting with the ecosystem or trying to find food or trying to just be able to understand what's going on. It's like, you have to interpret it. You have to be able to fit all these puzzle pieces together. And like, even if maybe you're not in a situation where you're trying to find wild edible greens or something, like if they start popping up, it might be because there's water nearby. And what does that mean? And it leads, mm. it leads to the next, you know, piece of the puzzle. Right. Um, but for me, it's like, I didn't, I wanted to teach that class because hunting is like this, like you're saying, it's this it's this big ordeal, right? And especially like big game Western hunting. Yeah. It's like you get one shot a year, maybe at doing it. It's you have to take time off. You have to like, yeah, no, I'm learning. Like, I've, I've definitely whole... developed an appreciation for it. <laughs> yeah. It's like, it's this big undertaking. And I think that's at the extreme side of what it means to interact with the landscape and get your food in like a, a wild way, right? But there's a thousand ways to do that before you go hunting. And you can cultivate that relationship with the ecosystem around you and start to understand it and, and build this um, build this relationship. And I love weeds. You know, the class was about, I think it was 10 or 12 wild edible weeds that you can find on anywhere in the continent, no matter where you are. It doesn't matter what city you are in. doesn't matter what ecosystem you're in, east coast, west coast, south, whatever, they're all going to be there. Um, and it's this incredibly simple on-ramp for people to start thinking about nature as this thing that they can interact with and that it will provide for them if they just show up and understand how to use it. Right. Um, and all of these weeds are like things that pop up in people's front yards and we walk past them a thousand times a day. And it's like the dandelion that pops up in the sidewalk crack that actually has more superfood qualities than like the 15 things you could buy on the shelf at Whole Foods. And that's just freaking cool. <laughs> like That's yeah. just endlessly awesome. And um, I, so my, my last semester in college, I did this program called the Sierra Institute, which took me, um, I had finished all my like, 
classes that I had to take for my degree. I just needed credits. And so I was like, I'm going to go on this backpacking semester. And the topic of it was eco-psychology and permaculture. And so I spent two months backpacking um, and then living on this homestead, learning how to grow food. And we would like get assigned readings, go hiking, come back around the campfire, have class in that environment, all that stuff. And that was the first time where somebody gave me a field guide. And it was John Muir Law's guide to the Sierra Nevada. And we had all kinds of time. And so I would walk around, I learned how to key out plants. And I realized like, for one, like, this isn't that hard, you know, like there's amazing resources and pictures and books that like take you step by step through how to gain this information. And then there's all these pattern languages within it. And it's like, once you start looking at and understanding these pattern languages, it unlocks like just this foundation of information, you know, like, what, oh, what does that mean? Pattern languages? Like, um, like all mint has square stems. And if you're looking at a plant, you think it's mint, like you can pick up these little, um, these little cues and tricks, like in thinking about wild edible food. And like, I was living in the wilderness. So things that were like medicine and edible were particularly interesting. Cause I'd been in the back country for weeks on end. Mm. And I was like, well, it should be fun to eat something else other than this like crap that <laughs> brought with me. And so, um, you know, I learned on that trip about, like sorrel and that was popping up in around the springs all around the campsites. And so I could have like a fresh salad every night that I was out there and that's awesome. And, um, like all, all plants just have these, um, you get into these kind of plant families, right? And it just helps you kind of learn this understanding. So it means that you can go somewhere where you've never been and start to look at how, you know, the veins or the way the leaves are growing or the the kind of basic patterns of the plants. And you can say, well, I think that's probably related to this because it has these qualities and it can kind of just set you down a path of familiarity with, a, with your ecosystem. And I just like couldn't get enough. And I got sick when I was out there and got like a head cold. And um, we had a book that was about wild medicinals. And I got like, was flipping through the book, figured out I could go find a plant called Yerba Santa, hiked halfway up the mountain, found some, came back, like made tea that night and all my congestion left my head. And I was like, this is the coolest thing <laughs> in the world, you know, and it's super empowering. Like if you can figure out how to like feed yourself and heal yourself with what's around you. Like that's, that's awesome. And it's fun. And it, you know, I think where I am at now with that kind of stuff in life is like, I'm holed up, uh, post knee surgery and, um, not going anywhere. I've, it's been, today was the first time I was off pavement. I walked on like a gravel path for the first time in like three weeks. And, um, that's tough for the soul, you know, to not be able to get outside and experience uh, the things that you love. But I've had all these like opportunities to time travel in my kitchen because I'm like eating the elk that I got this fall and having nettle tea that's in a jar on my shelf. And like every time I sit down and enjoy those things, it's a portal to those memories and the places that mm. I were and the, the way the sunset was that night or like how many times I got stung by those nettles or whatever, like conjures up this experience that I was able to have. And like, food that you get from the store just doesn't do that. It nourishes you in that moment, but then you move on to the next thing. You know, it does, there's like food that you've farmed or raised or cared for or grew in your backyard or harvested or like had some sort of process with, it just comes with this, this, this richness that, um, 
I got hooked on that. <laughs> and it's just kind of been, um, been how I've, you know, developed my, my hobbies and my passions ever since. So there were some really key people and teachers along that path, you know, and I just mostly just tried to get, get outside and get on forays and plant walks and, um, learn from anybody who's, and this happens in communities all over the place. Um, but just tried to learn as much as I could from like folks in my area who would go on, you know, mushroom forays and learn everything that they knew from that area and soak it up, you know. Where did you grow up? I grew up mostly in Colorado, but my family moved a lot. So it was either Colorado or, or um, California. And then I got to Utah about seven years ago now. But I spent a lot of time living in Northern California in my 20s. Loved it. Amazing place to learn about mushrooms and all sorts of different uh, plants and just like the coast in general and that that climate was really cool to be in I did a ton of like seaweed harvesting out there there's all sorts of cool fun uh man I'm into this because yeah your path is very distinctly different into this space mm -hmm. when did you start hunting yeah when did you start yeah, killing it's, yeah it's it's kind of a funny story um, and I'm glad we have some time, but, um, I, I didn't grow up hunting. Nobody in my family hunted, like didn't shoot a gun or a rifle until I was 27, maybe like, it just was not, not at all part of like the fabric or culture of my mm -hmm. family or community. So, um, so I'm definitely like a nonlinear path person into hunting for that sense. But I think that's why I love you know, being, being a part of like helping brands reach out to new hunters or like help create writing or educational information or, you know, storytelling around what it means to become a hunter. Because I, I do come from a place where it, it wasn't easy or it wasn't clear or like a lot of things were intimidating around it. So I love, you know, being a part of people figuring out how and if they want to be a part of hunting. But um, I, let's see, I was always interested in food. I used to be a competitive runner and I think at a really early age, I, in soccer and all sorts of sports and stuff, but at an early age, I learned about, um, how much nutrition affects me and affects all of us. And like, you know, if you eat well, you perform well kind of mm -hmm. thing, you feel good. And if you eat crappy, you don't. <laughs> and, um, so I was always interested in nutrition and that, and like that kind of paired with studying like food systems. And my, my thesis in school was on, um, like genetically modified organisms and biodiversity and like kind of the international environmental issue and how it's affecting, people and communities and ecosystems worldwide. And so like food's always been this topic in my world. And I've gone to great lengths to, to figure out like the best way to eat. Right. And like probably went through every phase of, Oh, I, you know, shouldn't eat meat to, I should eat meat. I should eat these kinds of meat. I should, you know, raise my own meat. Like did, did all the things related to food and farming. Um, and eventually got to this point where I was, I bought land with a couple other people and I was, it was really awesome. It was kind of dream come true situation where I was finally able to like be, cause I'd managed other people's land and other people's farms and, you know, always had to like leave or they were seasonal jobs or whatever. I finally could like sink my, my teeth and my hands into 
a certain spot and stay there and see kind of results year over year of how I could like positively affect it. And, um, I was farming, I was raising ducks and goats for meat, you know, I kind of had that homestead thing going on. That's what I'd zeroed in on is like, I think this is the best way like that I feel good about, um, like, you know, being a consumer <laughs> is just like being really close to it and understanding it, having a hand in it. And, and it was also fun. And I like, it's a good life, you know? Um, and it was so funny cause I was also rehabbing this land that is like coastal prairie with serious dug for encroachment is like a problem in Northern California and trying to like clear the dug for make room for like bunch grasses to come back, um, like clear space for the hazels that were there and all the other kind of like positive, um, plant interactions for like people and wildlife and like fighting the deer as they were getting into my garden, realizing like I'd improved all the habitat for the deer in the area and like hadn't considered hunting yet. And at the same time I was working for this, um, ecology center down the road and um at one point like I, I was a ecology teacher for third through eighth graders and they'd come and do like science camp and it was so fun some of the most fun I've ever had I would like take them tide pooling take them through the redwoods the whole thing was like let's be outside and learn about this place and there was a school garden component all sorts of stuff and um we had trail cams and oftentimes you like you find things hiking around, you find bones, you find feathers, sometimes you find carcasses. It's cool. It creates this moment for people to get like a close up of a wild thing that they, you know, never would have seen before. And so, you know, sometimes I'd be driving to work and we'd find, there'd be roadkill on the side of the road and I'd scoop it up and I'd plant it on the hikes where we'd be on. And I'm like, Whoa, look at that. Everybody in these fifth graders. Man, are just really? like oh yeah. Like what were you picking up? Dead what? I mean, there'd be like squirrels or rabbits or, you know, like sometimes raccoons and like, so we'd find this stuff that I planted on the hikes and then be like, okay, well, you know what kids, like if we put a camera on this, we can study the scavengers that are going to come oh, tonight. Wow. And then the next day, you know, and it's cool. I've, I've always loved like being able to look at the paw of an animal and be like, this is the paw that made the track that we see in the sand, mm -hmm. you know, like that's just endlessly cool and fascinating to me. Um, so long story short, like I became the roadkill queen of the, of my community there. And people would call me every time they found <laughs> a dead animal and be like, you want this? Like, I'm be, and I'd like say yes or no, whatever. Sometimes we'd come up on stuff that was pretty fresh. Right. And so then it was like, actually this deer is like in really good shape. And, um, and so that's how I got into like wild game actually is through roadkill. And, um, I learned from a woman who taught me many, many things in that area, like what to look for rigor mortis, look at the eyes, look at the hair slip, you know, like look at the guts and how everything is like mm -hmm. how it's been hit to determine if it's edible, if it's not, and how I like do that safely. Um, I did have a permit for it in this area. It's illegal in a lot of places, just clearing the air about that. But, um, yeah, so that's those were like the first deer I processed. And I remember when I first shot a deer here in Utah, like, and we started to butcher it, I was like, wow, everything is like so perfectly packaged and neat and there's no broken bones. And this is this is just so much like easier than processing roadkill. It's crazy. It's like this really pleasant thing. But um, anyway, I decided to hunt because I had 
moved from that land in California to here, Utah. Now I'm living in this big city and I don't, I don't have the space to raise ducks and raise goats. And I'm not a part of this, you know, community fabric where everybody is like contributing in that way and sharing things and trading things. So they do think like that's what it takes in a lot of ways to be successful with that. And, um, kind of simultaneously met my friend John and, um, you know, being in his house is like, you're having this amazing meal that's enriched with stories of somewhere, someplace where he'd hunted and there's just stories hanging on all the walls. Yeah. The stories are a big part of it. The stories are a big part of it. And I eventually just asked him so many, I'd be like, tell me about that one. Tell me about that one. What happens after you you get an animal down? What do you do then? Blah, blah, blah. And like, finally he's like, do you just want to come with? And I was like, Yes. <laughs> so that's how I got started hunting. I spent the first year kind of dipping my toes into it, thinking, oh, I'm just going to watch. Oh, I'm just going to be along for the ride. But I'm going to be prepared just in case, you know, and I'm going to learn how to sight in a rifle and get the gear I need and blah, blah, blah. And, um, and I ended up like having some really hard days in the mountains. And it's like every day that I was kind of testing whether I wanted to hunt, I wanted to be successful even more. It's like I just, the drive just started to build in me and build in me and build in me. And then that hunt ended up being successful. I got this, um, this cool spike buck. And I remember like coming home and, um, either the next day or day after like standing up and eating a piece of the backstrap alone in my kitchen, like right out of the skillet and just feeling like my life had just changed forever. And like, this is, this is me now. Like I, I'm, this is it. I love this. So, and I've been like transfixed ever since really like pouring so much time and energy into learning it and tons of heartbreak and injury and, <laughs> um, and also a lot of success, I think too, for, learning and I feel like this is a hard place to learn how to hunt just you know it's steep it's tough to find animals on public land it's been it's been a lot of um it's been a lot of effort and and I feel like it's it's a, turned me into it showed me parts of myself that like had revealed themselves in other activities throughout life, like my tenacity for things or my ability to like keep showing up with something is hard. And it's just kind of revealed all of those aspects and made me feel my whole person in a way, you know, it's like this, this actually requires all of my skills to do this successfully. And it incorporates all the things that I love at the same time. I mean, you're talking about, about it the same way that I do, Lindsay. Uh, I, <laughs> I think love, that's why we clicked when yeah, we met. <laughs> I think you're right. I love that you started eating roadkill. Oh my gosh, uh, yeah. You know, I've eaten a lot of roadkill actually, and uh, to the point that like people were like making jokes about it. You know, like mm -hmm. I live in Arkansas. You're like you're li you live in Arkansas, man. You're eating you're eating roadkill. I'm not even that country, right? But I mean, what are you gonna do, man? There's like there's a perfectly good deer that just got its neck broken. It's still warm. You know, yeah. like, uh, you know, I'd be a fool to let that go by the wayside, especially when like I got nothing but time. Right. Um, I could actually, so you met my wife, Marianne, and we hung out. When she's we were the in, coolest. She's red, man. Uh, she's super red. That's why I've been with her for like essentially my entire adult life. <laughs> uh, but like she could tell you stories about like Thanksgivings when I'm like out on the front porch skinning roadkill beavers 
<laughs> That's the, awesome. Uh, and oh, you can't even say this without the juvenile. So go ahead and chuckle. But like the first time I ate beaver was like a roadkill beaver. That's awesome. And I was like fascinated with it too, man, because it's like yeah. exactly what you're talking about. I knew what a beaver was from cartoons and just from you know advertisements or whatever or thinking they eat wood and not really knowing anything about it but you know you get your hands on one and it's like this tail looks like this prehistoric scaly thing you know it's got these webbed feet like a duck it's got this thick thick luxurious fur these crazy giant incisors you're looking at this thing uh, and then, yeah, you open it up and it's like, oh, that's a castered land. What part is this? What part is this? And then you, you know, I used to just stick tons of stuff in like a crock pot, you know, like initially when I started cooking wild game, I was just taking advice from, you know, the people around me that, you know, grew up hunting and eating. And it was like a lot of Lipton soup packets and <laughs> cream of mushroom soup type stuff in yep. a crock pot. Yep. Basically just making shit on a shingle, mm -hmm. which is still pretty good. Right. Uh, but yeah, man, there's a bunch of other similarities too. Like we used to raise ducks and goats and, you know, we lived in the country for a long time. Ducks are a pain in the ass. They're nasty. <laughs> I mean, you know, for someone who spends so much of his life pursuing waterfowl, yeah. keeping them in your backyard oh, is man. gross, yep. dude. They're not meant that I really, you can have a couple of them, but man, they got to have a place because ducks want to be in the water and they clean themselves in the water and they pee and poop in the water and you know like a little wading pool is not really sufficient like i think they need more than that no um, and you clean that water and then within like 20 minutes it looks as bad as it did it's oh, yeah. foul and then they're yeah. still drinking it and you're just like is this okay you know what i've actually <laughs> i've talked to marianne about and i'd like to do this so we've got you know just yard birds chickens back at home in little rock but you know and i've got a you know i've got a pretty good sized garden you can see some of that in uh, uh, on the Sika website, go to the Sika experience. But like what I'd like to actually do is like inset a little pond, you know, like so I'd use like a pl plastic pond liner with a pump and everything. Just yep. you know, keep it moving. Mm -hmm. Have like two or three ducks just laying hens like Khaki Campbell's. Mm -hmm. And then have it set up to where every day I'll have another pump on that pond and then pump all that nasty, funky water onto the garden and oh, fertilize yeah. it and then just refill the duck water, you know? That's the way. And get, and pop some plants in there that will help, like, filter and do some of that uptake, too. Like some oh, what water. sort of plants? I'm, I'll have to look. It's, I'll, I'll get back to you. On, okay. like, I have some awesome permaculture books that, like, have lists for that kind of stuff. But there used to be one right outside my office, and that was the deal. And there's, like, cool... Um, there's these cool pavers too called flow forms. It's like mm -hmm. just ways that you can circulate water to like have it be self-cleaning and oxygenating and like make it its own little habitat, you know, but that's definitely the way. Cause it, right. Like permaculture is all about you turn a problem into the solution and like all this like nutrified duck water is a disgusting problem until you want to grow food and you need fertilizer. And then it's actually a solution for something else yeah. you need, you know? And so I, that, that way of thinking I think is, is so fun. It's like, everything's a puzzle, right? And like nothing's actually waste. It's just a resource you haven't figured out how to use. Well, and you know, like you could, you could think of it like, you know, this is like some hippy dippy stuff or whatever. Right. But this is really about as rudimentary and foundational 
you know, to, you know, I'd, I'd argue civilization, mm-hmm. you know, like, look, we could go back to the Aztecs, to the Mayans, to, you know, the, the great uh, civilizations of like pre-colonized Africa, all the way across Europe, all these different places where people are just making a way. And that's exactly what they're doing, mm-hmm. you know, uh, or shoot, we can go back a couple hundred years ago or the damn depression, you know, when people are reusing and taking advantage of what they have and making the most of what they have, it's, uh, now we could dress it up right now and we could talk about like a holistic lifestyle, right? all of that, mm-hmm. but it's, it's common sense to me, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. Well, and it's an interesting time for all this right now too, because we're coming out of COVID and being shown very clearly how fragile our supply chains Mm. are and just you know that's why so many people are getting into hunting last year and this year it's like the meat meat shelves are bare and so it's like it's not a pleasant way to come to terms with some of this stuff and like the fragility of how food gets to your plate but um but i think anything that I guess encourages that inquiry is, is a positive thing in my mind, you know, like how do we get back to people at least understanding how, how they, the role that they have in the environment, right? Like I don't need everybody to become a hunter. That's not the only way to eat meat. Like there's a, there's a thousand great ways <laughs> to yeah, be I mean, a part of the food system. It's actually not sustainable. Right. Like it's not possible. Yeah. But I think like the issue is people just, people don't know you know and it's not their fault it's like we've like what you were saying about people just being disconnected from the place or the land or the the food that they grew it's like it's not their fault it's not people who live in cities fault today that's the world we built you know it's like people don't know how meat gets processed because we started putting it up raising it somewhere putting it on trains ship like carting it to somewhere else to be butchered and killed and processed and then sent somewhere else. It's like that, that's disconnection that, that we did. And so I don't like, like blaming people who aren't a part of, you know, some type of regenerative food system, but I do like figuring out how to like encourage them or, you know, show them that there's a lot of ways to be a part of it and a lot of ways to understand, um, how you can be, you know, a part of it because I think it's awesome it's fun like for me it's unlocked all of my hobbies I think everybody deserves that opportunity to you know be exposed and decide for themselves is this something I want to do or not and if not you know there's a bunch of other ways that you can go be a good food citizen yeah you know I, I want to not rem- forget this other point but yeah that idea of like food insecurity that I think a bunch of people felt for the first time in their lives when like lockdown stuff first started happening. Mm -hmm. Like I remember I was, I actually, you know, like I was freaked out. Right. And I didn't know what was going on. And I got these babies at home and I'm like, Oh my God, I want my family to be safe. And so, you know, it was like right at the beginning and I was going like, I was, I'm usually the one who does the grocery shopping in my house anyway. Right. So I was like going early in the morning and I remember I was in Bryant, Arkansas, which is kind of like a, I guess maybe at one point it was like a bedroom community outside of Little Rock and now it's kind of like its own thing. And there's like a Walmart there. It's Arkansas. So there's Walmarts everywhere. And I remember like 6.30 in the morning and there was a line. Of, it was like a line of, because they let senior citizens in first. Remember they were doing mm-hmm. that? 
it was a line of people like waiting outside in a line to go in and buy food. Mm-hmm. Like it looked like something, it looked reminiscent of like the bread lines from Soviet Russia. Wow. Man, it yeah. really hit me. I was like, man, I never thought I was going to see this in America. Yeah. And so like for that first week or two, back there in that March when COVID hit, like there was a curfew in Little Rock. Like, I mean, you know, everything got upended and you could leave to go to, you could leave to go to work or to go like food shopping or like go to the doctor. So you could like feed yourself and just like do the bare minimum. But one of the rules, you know, or one of the caveats was that you could hunt or fish as a way to get food. Oh, wow. So I, I left for two days and I went and stayed up at Black Duck at the lodge and I just went to the bayou and I ran trot lines and stuff and caught a bunch of catfish. And I, I had, you know, plenty of meat in deep freezes, but I was like, man, I don't know what's going on here. I'm going to get a little extra padding. So I went and caught all these fish, and it was that first day was probably the best catch I'd ever had. Like, I had to throw back half of the fish I caught because I was over the limit. You wow. Know? Yeah. And so I came back, had all this catfish, and I, like, uh, you know, filleted them out and everything. And we had some friends, like kind of a young couple. They had a little baby, and they were both waiters. And so like they didn't have any, they didn't have any money coming in for like mm-hmm. weeks. Hmm. And so Marianne took a, like a quart bag of catfish fillets over there. Just, you know, like, cause it, we maybe kind of got the sense that it was getting lean over there. Right. Mm-hmm. And they like texted Marianne and said, Oh my goodness, this was so awesome. We like fried up a bunch of catfish. And it's like the first thing we've eaten other than peanut butter and jelly for like a week. Right. Oh. And I mean, they're fine now and they're thriving and doing well, but. Dude, that was super validating, and it it just kind of really hammered home for me that, you know, like, I came to hunting as an adult, and it, like, transformed my life, you know, yeah. kind of in, like, a similar way that you're, you're referencing, you know, and I was, Marianne and I had this little homestead, and we were raising birds and goats, and we had, like, a big garden, and just figuring all that stuff out, and realizing that I had this, you know, acquired this skill set that had just become normal for me. Mm-hmm. That was, I mean, that was allowing me to to do one of the most human things possible, which is like share food with somebody. Like you don't think about how substantial that is. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, you know, we think about like you take a casserole over when you know to somebody when someone's there's like a death in someone's family or you know a new mom and you're like cooking some meals for them. But like really, when you really get down to like you're feeding, helping to feed somebody else, you're feeding yourself, you're feeding, then all the other stuff, like you're feeding yourself and you're feeding your spirit and all of that romanticism. But like just straight up, like a bag of catfish fillets was like a game changer for these folks. Yeah. Um, And that's big and that's super important. And it's, you know, there's some nobility involved in that too. Uh, I'd also... That was kind of like a slight tangent, but I'd like to get back to something you were talking about, about like when you're uh, you're making these realizations about yourself, because I think this is something that doesn't get talked about enough in the hunting space, that I think sometimes we try and simplify it, and it's like, I learned I could do hard stuff, mm-hmm. but you're not just talking about that. You're talking about this kind of being a culmination of all these other things that you had hints of in your life before, you know, mm-hmm. tenacity and stick to itness. And, uh, you already had this like intimate connection with nature and all these things were being realized. And then you do something that's, you know, 
I would imagine initially like difficult and uncomfortable. And it's one thing to like be presented with something that's already dead and then like go through the work of breaking it down and processing. And it's another thing to, to be responsible for that death or to see the, to see the life drain out of something. You know, these are like heavy, heavy things, right? Yeah. Um, and I'd like to kind of, like to kind of dig into that a little bit more because I, you really, I've, I so identified with that and I, I honestly don't know that I've heard it articulated as well in the space about, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, if I'm putting too much into this, but this idea that maybe you felt like your humanity was like more fully realized or fulfilled by participating in this. Yeah. I mean, so I'm, I'm going to tell a short story that, um, will help kind of piece a little bit of this together. But, um, right before the roadkill phase, um, uh, it was on one of these Sierra Institute trips. I, I went on that program and then I became a teacher for that program. Um, so did that as a guide for a couple of years. And, um, we had this, uh, primitive skills teacher who, um, her name's Tamara Wilder and she, her business is called Paleotechnic. She's taught me so many amazing things, but she was the one we had picked up a bobcat, um, going from, you know, point A to point B. And she was teaching us all sorts of stuff, like how to start a bow drill fire, how to, you know, make cordage, how to do all these kind of, um, basic survival things. And we we're like, let's get the bobcat because tomorrow we'll do a skinning demonstration. Mm -hmm. We got halfway through it. All the students had to go out on a 24 hour solo. She looked at me and she said, you're going to finish this. And I was like, no, I'm not <laughs> never done that before. This is before I'd processed an animal for meat before I'd done anything like that. And she said, nope, yep, you're going to do it. And so she sent me on my, you know, all my students were gone and I had the next 24 hours to myself. She gave me a half skin bobcat and a piece of obsidian and said, okay, go for it. Dude, you were going deep on this, man. A piece of obsidian. Yeah. Well, that was her style. Like she's just, you know, she'd done like a flint napping demonstration and stuff. And so that's what was there. And I was like, okay. And I sat down and I, you know, my mind was doing the things our minds do, which was like, nope, you don't know how to do this. What are you doing? You shouldn't be doing this. You've never done this before. And then I, no one was around. I had nothing else that I should have been doing. This was the task in front of me. And so I picked up the piece of obsidian and just started working it, right? Like pe peeling the skin, checking it out, looking at how beautiful this animal was, falling in love with what we're talking about, like that intimacy of getting to see this wild creature up close and just see how detailed the colors are and just all of that. I, I started feeling that transfiction. And then I watched my hands skin this bobcat like it had always known how to do it and I thought that was the most like it was like I was above my body like staring down at my hands watching them do this skill that my brain told me I'd never done before and that I didn't know how to do and my hands were like nope actually every cell in your body was like designed and evolved to do this and that just unlocked it all for me and so it started this this kind of headspace of like well what other skills do I have that I think I don't have that I've been born to experience and been, you know, have evolved to be a part of me? Like, so I think that throughout this whole journey of becoming a hunter, it's been, um, 
you know, I don't, I don't listen to the chatter of my brain as much as I do like the feeling in my soul when it's like, no, climb to the next ridge, you know, it's like, go get there because there's probably like something in me driving that, you know, and, and I think that's, that's the coolest thing that keeps me showing up for it is that, um, there's always something that I learn about myself that I was able to do or that I had skills for or I could develop skills for that I logically thought wasn't there. Um, so hunting, like every time I have a big game hunting experience, like I learn just like so much and like you're, you know, you said humanity and like that's part of it to me. That's more like the feelings around what it means to like hunt and harvest and kill and then eat and that that's like super complicated and interesting too. Um, but yeah, I love like what this reveals in me. Um, and this past fall I had my second season pursuing bull elk and three days into it, I was like, I don't think I can do this anymore. Maybe like elk hunting is just not for me. This is so hard. Like I'm so physically drained. I'm so mentally drained. Like everything, like I I was ready to quit. And then I just kept doubling down being like one more day, give it one more day, give it one more day. Um, And there was a ton of heartache and like missed opportunities and just things that I wished went differently throughout that time. And on the eighth morning, I woke up actually like excited that it was my last day. I'm like, I get to go home today. Like I've doubled down Mm -hmm. through all the days. This is the last day I've done it. I've done everything I can. Um, and I ended up being successful that morning because I like went to my spot. Nothing was happening. I just kept like, I just kept doubling down being like, I'm going to go another 20 yards up this ridge. I'm going to go another 20 yards up this ridge, catching my breath, huffing and puffing being like, I'm going to go, I'm going to, I'm going to make it to this spot. And then finally like, okay, I'm going to get to this very last spot. And that's where, uh, I walked up heard cows, ran into a moose, got around the moose, ended up getting into like 60 elk, the most elk I'd seen all week, saw two bulls sparring, ended up being able to like get down, get my rifle set up, cow call, have the whole thing work out, like have all all the skills that I'd built being on any hunt and learning all the hard failures of every hunt up until then just line up and work out like dink, 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 dink. And it was just the coolest thing. And I think it's for me, like I'm still integrating the experience of that hunt, but I've been thinking a lot, not about like the animal that comes out of it, but like who I become in the process of the pursuit of that animal and how Mm. that changes me more than anything else. And I think that's because that was like such an endurance endurance test for me, both mentally and physically that I, I like went through so many days of it. Um, but it's been interesting to consider how important that part of the process is. And and now I'm in this headspace where I'm like, what is it? What is it about the hunt? Is it, you know, which is why I love, I love hunting because it's so fraught with these big questions, right? Mm-hmm. Like if it were simple, we wouldn't love it yeah. as much as we do, but it's like so rich and so full of all these different things that we can think about and feel and experience that, every time there's going to be something interesting that happens, you know? Dude, Lindsay, I love that. I'll tell you what I thought when you were talking about that is like, I hope I make people feel the way you just made me feel when I talk about this shit, man. Cause that's, that was so resonant and so beautiful and just so eloquently, 
you know, described how I feel about that stuff. Like there's like, it's a pursuit that's fraught with so many different things. Right. Yeah. But you're like, you're discovering yourself. You're discovering your own potential Mm -hmm. and you're realizing that your own potential is so much greater than you ever thought it could be. Yeah. Like that hunt with Jay, man, like I got my ass kicked and I, it's part of the reason I wanted to come up here. You know, like I'm just, I'm, I'm discontent with my physical condition, you know, and I feel like my physical condition as it sits right now is representative of just, you know, anxiety and being stressed out and feeling unsure of myself and like imposter syndrome and all this shit. Right. And I just, I needed to reset it. Cause I just felt I'd, I'd always kind of prided myself on like, I can, I can endure more than other people. Right. Mm -hmm. Like that. I was, I guess I was tougher than other people in some way. And I've just been feeling soft for so long and just, I don't know, dare I say it flaccid, you know, like not in the way that counts, but just like, (laughs) just, uh, atrophied and yeah not my best self, you Mm -hmm. know? And I, I was kind of wondering like, do I, am I still gritty enough? You know, Mm -hmm. can I still push myself like that? Cause I've been in all sorts of situations where it's like, man, take three more steps, just one foot in front of the other, you know, like to get up to those elk, like we got to a point, like I told you, I was taking those trekking poles and I was like, just sticking them, sticking them in the, uh, in the snow and then pulling myself like a foot at a time on this like super steep incline that the, snow was so deep I couldn't I just kept punching through to my waist and I was so tired that's the worst oh man it was and I'm like dealing with this altitude I'm not used to and I'm just like huffing and puffing and just sucking in wind and just thinking like you know I think I can put my foot in that footprint that Jay made you know I think I can put my foot in that footprint that Jay made and then I can't put it in that one so I got to make my own foothold you know yeah. it was like I thought about all these like crazy analogies like yeah. you can follow You can follow a path, but only so much. And then you got to make your own, all that stuff. Right. And, and then having to go to the next ridge and the next ridge and like, Oh, I think we're gonna get these elk. And then someone shot them. And then I go to the next ridge and, and yeah, what you end up with is, yeah, I got this elk and I'm super stoked about that. And I'm stoked about the, the meat that I'm going to take home to my family and friends and those stories that I'm going to tell. Right. And like reliving that experience. But I also had a, I got to take stock of myself the whole time, you know, yeah. and realize that like, I do still have it. And maybe I've got more than I thought I did. Cause there was plenty of times where I thought like, you know, like I, I don't know that I can do this, Yeah, you know? Uh, but yeah, it's, there is, it's, it's like a path to self-discovery that I, I want that more than almost anything else for folks. Yeah. Like I want them to understand what they're capable of. You know, I feel like we've been conditioned to think that we are far less capable than we are. And we have to be dependent on these systems and services and whatever else. And I mean, like we are, we are, we are talking about like the natural world. Like we're part of that right the the way that like a an elk can just could suck up bullets and like you shoot it and it doesn't fall down like like we've got some of that in us too mm-hmm. you know like that's why 
I mean, people can, you hear about these people that walk these like incredible distances or like a mother that lifts a car off of her baby or whatever it is. Right. And I feel like just as people maybe were a little atrophied with those things. Sure. And it's, and when you start getting bits and pieces of that or like a taste of it, it, uh, it's like ripples in a pond to like transfer. It, it, it's transferable to all these different points in your life. And then like you're talking about, you also then develop this, you know, we all have this sphere of influence around us. Maybe it's just your friends. Maybe it's your family. Maybe it's your children or whatever, but like you're imparting that, that strength or that resiliency or that thoughtfulness to those people around you. Mm -hmm. Right. You're so then like that energy that you expel that then you're like trying to rebuild from this animal. Like it's actually, it's like becoming this cacophony around you, you know, and it's, it's like, it's like waves. I can think of all these different examples and analogies, but I just love that you look at it like that so much. It just, I would, man, I'd actually hazard to say that it's, uh, I don't know that I've ever felt like this level of kinship with those considerations around this stuff with other people. Hmm. Uh, and yeah, man, I just, I'm really, I really appreciate that. That's how you look at it. Yeah, because uh, it's it's super important and it's uh it's like upper level stuff, you know. Well, and and what I love too is, like, I feel like anybody can like have these experiences, right? Like, you don't have to be a hunter to have these experiences. Maybe it's just like climbing a really steep mountain, or like going on a hike, or like being really physically and mentally challenged by the environment, but. um I, I I just think hunting presents like all these <laughs> extreme opportunities to do that. But like, I, I always want to make sure people feel like it's approachable, right? Like there's a thousand mm -hmm. ways to begin to experience what we're talking about. Like you don't have to be a like Western archery elk hunter to, to do it. You can start in a bunch of different ways, but, um, and then like what's going to happen after that is Every year, you know, every year I start the season and I'm like, man, I'm not going to make the same mistakes I made last year. And like, I'm, I've progressed and I've developed and all these things. And like, it just presents like a very full, uh, new host of lessons, right. <laughs> and like a new, um, humbling. And this year was my fifth or sixth season. And it was so interesting because all of my lessons were the same and I was, successful on every hunt where I went out on my own, listened to myself, made instincts, made decisions based on my instincts, um, like stopped when I needed to stop, pushed when I felt like I should push, like was just in this conversation with just me and the signs that were around, right? And like every other hunt where I was with other people or getting caught up in what they thought or uh, like listening to their reasoning or decisions wasn't successful didn't enjoy it as much like just was didn't have there was it lacked like something dude some depth. say it again Lindsay. i so, gotta write an article for sitka about that very thing oh cool i can't wait to read it because i'll learn something but this this elk hunt that i just described six six days in seven days in um i'd been like in that that same kind of conflict hunting with other people um, getting pulled in a bunch of different directions, like being kind of pissed at myself that I'd let that happen, even though I'd 
learned that lesson already on a hunt previously in the fall, you know, being like, you know what you're doing. You have the skills to do this on your own. Why are you getting caught up with other people following their lead, thinking you need to be with them or have them nearby or all these things, right? And so that last day, I went out by myself. And what do you know, like, went exactly where I thought I should go when I thought I should go, like, listened to my own body, my own instincts, like, made my own cow calls, like, had the whole interaction go down, made my own shot. Nobody was ranging for me. Nobody was talking to me. It's just, it flowed, right? And I wasn't thinking about any of that stuff on the way I just was out there hunting, like, being, you know, myself and intuiting what was happening on the mountain. And that's like, holy shit, <laughs> like the lessons in that I'm still trying to figure out for myself. I'm like, because what does that mean for the rest of my life and my life stage right now and how I should be making decisions about other things that I'm coming up against? And it's like trusting myself, trusting how much I've learned at this point in my life, trusting my like gut's going to tell me like what it is I should or shouldn't be involved in, all that stuff. And like, holy shit, we get that from going hunting and like suffering in the mountains for a couple of days. Like, Yes, please. Like, <laughs> I'll do that every time. And then you get to leave with this amazing food if you've been successful. Like, wow, like what a gift. And then you get to share that with other people and encourage them to do the same thing. And I just, I haven't found anything I love more than that at this point. Oh, that's so good, Lindsay. <laughs> I mean, it really is. Uh, I had all these other things, you know, like I told you I was going to ask you about and I don't even want to talk about any of them <laughs> I just I really want to leave people with that uh hunt the way that Lindsay is hunting <laughs> seriously I mean that in all seriousness hunt that way go at it with that intention you'll find success in places you had no idea you were capable of uh you'll find moments when the kill is anticlimactic and all the best stuff about it was getting there but yeah, just hunt like Lindsay Davis. <laughs> just live like her. Shit, man. Take that same attitude towards everything you do in your life. And you'll be the most successful version of yourself. Uh, I'm kind of going to wrap it up there, man. We're going to go eat gumbo. We've had the heat turned off in this uh, garage for a while, and I'm getting cold. But, uh, dude, Lindsay, seriously, man, I appreciate you so much. I appreciate your uh, your thoughtfulness and your approach to this and – I'm like, I'm leaving this interview like more impressed with you than I was, you know, starting it. And <laughs> it's man. Yeah. It's, it's been really awesome. Uh, man. So tell folks how they can follow you and learn from you and get a hold of you if they need to, or if you want them to. Yeah. I'm totally open to that. Especially if you have questions about anything like getting into the outdoors, you know, I do a lot of things that are not hunting. And, um, so I'm totally open to talking to people about that and pointing resources. And, um, so I'm mostly, um, online on Instagram, which is Lindsay Brown Davis, Lindsay dot Brown dot Davis and Brown has an E on it. Um, I'm also one of black deck revival's number one fans. So you can usually find me in the comments mm -hmm. section there. Um, but yeah, that's a good place to start. And, um, I have a website, which is the same URL and I have a bunch of articles and, um, resource kits and things I've put together there too. And my email is accessible on the website. So please reach out if you have questions or if you generally just want to chat or connect about anything related to these topics. And, um, I'd be happy to, share my experience and 
point you in the direction of resources that can help you on your way. Dude, so good. Lindsay, thanks a bunch. Yeah, it's so good to see you. Yeah. Thank you so much again for listening to this episode of the Black Duck Revival podcast. As always, it's produced by me, Jonathan Wilkins, and Brian Sachs. If you like this podcast, you want more folks to know about it, you want me to continue to be able to do that, uh, please help me out a little bit. Just a five-star review, subscribing on Apple Podcast or Spotify or wherever you like to listen to podcasts, and a positive written review. That stuff helps tremendously. So if you feel moved to do that, uh, thank you in advance. Also, uh, if you want to keep up with me or what's going on with Black Duck Revival, the easiest way to do that is on social media, just Black Duck Revival, or at the website, blackduckrevival.com. We're just a few weeks away from announcing the season hunt dates for uh, 2022-2023. We'll have a, a handful of really cool, very specifically curated hunting experiences in the waterfowl realm there at the old church in Brinkley, Arkansas. And I'd love to have you. Like I said, we're only going to do a handful of them this year because I'm kind of taking my show on the road. And that's something I'm excited to talk about uh, more in the coming weeks. But I'm going to be available to uh, come to you, to your event, uh, to your duck camp, to your hunting camp, and kind of do what I do you know, here based in, uh, in Arkansas, anywhere in the country. So we'll talk more about that uh, in the weeks to come. But if you do want to get on that email list so you know a little bit ahead of time uh, what the season dates are going to look like, just go on over to the website, blackduckrevival.com, and sign up for that, and uh, you'll be the first to know. Again, thank you so much for listening. Uh, I so appreciate it. Uh, until next time. Mm-hmm.